Sex and Murder, a cult killer paranormal podcast. The Witchfinder General, a self-bestowed title to one Matthew Hopkins, was active from 1644 until 1647 and is thought of having been responsible for the executions of one-fifth of all accused witches from the 15th to 18th centuries in England. He was extremely ruthless in his persecution of those accused of witchcraft and is the focus of our episode today. Now, I won't be going through each and every trial that he participated in, otherwise this could stretch on hours upon hours. Instead, we'll be touching on just some of the more substantial cases and maybe some that are just plain bizarre or strange. Our main source, based on the fact that pretty much every other source I read pointing back to this or the primary source cited in this book, is Witchfinders, a 17th century England tragedy by Malcolm Gaskell. It's a fantastic book, really great book, that delves into the attitudes and environment of the 16th and 17th century England and holds an amazing amount of detail on the backgrounds of even just the littlest of players involved in this era of history. With that, let's jump into the life of Matthew Hopkins. There isn't much known about Matthew Hopkins' life prior to his entry into history as a witch finder. It's likely that he was born in 1620, but when exactly, we're not too sure. A list of his family in 1619 excluded him, and in 1641 he was acting as a legal witness, so we knew he was at least 21 that year. Either way, we know he had three brothers, like Matthew, named after the apostles. His father, James Hopkins, who was a fervent but fair Protestant, provided Matthew with a nice home life influencing him to pursue life as a lawyer or a magistrate or something along those lines. He died when Matthew was a young teenager, leaving Matthew with a small fortune that allowed him to move towns and pursue an apprenticeship as a clerk. While we don't have much on Hopkins' early life, we do have a lot documenting the time that he grew up in, and I think it's important to understand where Matthew Hopkins ended up later in his life. Protestantism was the religion of the state due to the English Reformation, though this would change hands over the next century leading up to Matthew Hopkins himself. The Puritans grew out of a want to move Christianity back to a more simplified religion based on purely scripture and nothing else. These symbolic rituals performed by the Catholic Church were seen as literal and acts like communion weren't seen as a miracle or a remembrance. In many Puritan eyes, these were straight-up acts of Antichrist. An important statute passed in 1563 moved the authority of the persecuting of those accused of maleficium from the domain of the ecclesiastical court to the secular court. This was due to the nature of maleficium accusations containing the loss of livestock or destroyed property or even murder. It would be grossly inappropriate for the church to be trying capital crimes and move the trial of witches from a church affair to a state affair. On the flip side of this, the invocation of spirits was outside the realm of earthly law and was largely left up to the church to handle. This attitude would change by 1600, however. 
Prior to Matthew's birth, King James had printed his Bible. This had become the primary translation for Protestants of this time, especially James Hopkins. King James was a keen witch hunter himself, considering witches vermin. He published a tract in 1597 called Demonology, which was not only an academic manifesto in favour of witch hunting, but it was also a practical guide. This would be a great influence on Matthew Hopkins as he grew. Despite the abolition of rituals, the abolition of saints to pray to, people at the time still remained fairly superstitious. Even Puritans called on St. Margaret to alleviate birth pangs and clutched at holy charms to calm their nerves. Because the folklore was so ingrained, a lot of it wasn't really considered bad. Thus, Matthew would have enjoyed a local game of catch, only it was out in the woods and he wasn't catching baseballs, rather he was searching for fairies. This combined with tales of ghosts and witches would have blurred the lines of natural and supernatural by the time Matthew Hopkins heard his first sermon. 1604 saw a revised witchcraft act, which made the conjuration of spirits a capital crime, perhaps spurned by King James's belief that the devil was a real, tangible force of evil that was able to physically manifest and interact with people. The years preceding the change saw King James personally torturing suspected witches and working with authorities to trial the women accused. But it was also in 1604 when King James cooled his heels on witches. Richard Bancroft was now the Archbishop of Canterbury and he had declared war on the militant Calvinists and King James backed him. While King James may have continued to hold his ideas on witches privately, in public he submitted to the Archbishop's views on them. By the time of Charles I in 1625, witch trials were extremely likely to fail. Either there would be insufficient evidence, uh, medical examination proved innocence of the accused, or the accuser was simply outed as a fraud, a straight-up liar. One trial in particular in 1612, reprised in 1634, was the Lancashire Trials. Margaret Johnson confessed to being visited by the devil, disguised as a man in the black suit, offering food and revenge for her soul. She then attended the meeting in Forest, where the witches arranged the deaths of people and their livestock. Despite one of the main witnesses admitting that he made everything up, the trial moved forward. At this time, King Charles I had requested suspects be examined by his own physician, William Harvey. William Harvey found something of note on Margaret Johnson's body. Quote, We did find two things, maybe called teats. The first in the shape like that of the teat of a bitch. The second like a nipple or a teat of a woman's body, but the same colour with the rest of the skin, without any hollowness or issue for any blood or juice to come from thence. With that, the science had beat superstition. There was no proof of maleficium. Though an argument could be made for making a pact with the devil, the criminal law didn't prosecute for pacts with the devil and required hard evidence before the witch in question could be put to death. Maybe this seemingly powerless display from the courts is what fested the fear for witches over the next 20 or so years. 1645 would mark the beginning of Matthew Hopkins' two-year crusade against the witches. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. 
Manningtree was a small market town on the northern edge of the dense area of marsh wood and farmland. The area had a bishop appointed to the town in 1633, but practically everyone hated him for his seemingly haughty nature. Local baron, Sir Harbottle Grimston, an influential and staunchly Puritan knight, had denounced this man during Parliament in 1640 as a sty of all pestinial filth that hath infested the state and government of his commonwealth. The years leading up to March 1645, which accusations had been in Sir Grimston's jurisdiction? In 1640, a woman named Sarah Hatton was said to have threatened Francis Stock. Stock's wife was reported to have seen an imp disguised as a snake in her house after the encounter. Two days later, she and two of her kids were dead. Their servant also fell sick after striking Hatland's son. In 1644, Richard Edwards had two of his cattle die, with no signs of disease when checking the bodies. Soon after, Edwards' newborn son was with a wet nurse who lived next door to Elizabeth Clark, who he suspected of the cattle incident. The baby fell into strange fits, extending its limbs and rolling its eyes, and would die a few days later. Elizabeth Clark would be directly involved with the 1645 trial, the fallout impacting Anne West. Anne West and her daughter, Rebecca, were blamed for the death of Lawford John Cutler's son's death, but he didn't prosecute. His neighbour, Thomas Hart, would, though, for the death of a pig. Anne was tried and was acquitted. The townsfolk tried again at least two other times, bringing charges to court against her. With so many accounts of witches, Matthew Hopkins' own claim in 1644 was kind of just another drop in the pond. While we don't know exactly what happened, what we do know is that this time he ended up in the company of a man called John Stern. A man after Matthew's own heart, similar in origins, both holding themselves to the highest of Puritan regards, an unswerving duty to God. There were also men of action rather than words. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. Thomas Hart held a grudge against Anne West, believing her to have gotten away with the killing of his pig three years prior. So when his wife gave birth prematurely to a stillborn child, Anne West was prime on his list of suspects. John Cutler had given Thomas Hart assurance that if he were to pursue legal action, Hart would give Cutler full support and backing. Manningtree was the next town over, and gossip of witchcraft was rife. Elizabeth Clark was confronted by townsmen, led by John Rivett, concerning the rumours of her being a witch. She admitted it freely. It was John Stern who took her confession. John Stern took the confession to Sir Harbottle Grimston. There was no clergy in the town to look after these matters, their last two religious leaders having died in 1638 and 1643. In the absence of a rector or any sort of clerical power, the political influence Stern had gathered allowed him to place this before the secular court in the area. Friday 21st of March 1645, the magistrates listened to the complaints of sin, crime and disorder. It was in this room that, with a signature on parchment, the most savage witch hunt in English history would begin. 
The magistrates had heard the confession. They had given Stern a warrant for the searching of persons that I should nominate. Stern was given the power to discover the names of other witches from Elizabeth Clark, and Matthew Hopkins assisted him. The more brutal methods seem to have been denied from them at this point, though, as Stern wanted to test out trial by floating, and the records show that he was specifically denied this. In clear conflict to the outcome of the Lancashire trials, the attitude of many magistrates had completely flipped in the last decade, with many extending the definition of prosecutable witchcraft from murder to include, more broadly, conjuration of evil spirits, covenanting with them, and taking anybody to use it about witchery. But the need for some sort of hard evidence was still required before the witch could be sentenced. And so, four women of the town called to the Clark House, eager to search Elizabeth for the witch's mark. Searching for marks, save the Lancashire trials, were usually left for women, as the view at the time was that searching bodies was typically women's work. And in addition to witches, they also investigated suspected plague victims, infocidal mothers, and felons during pregnancy. It may also have something to do with witchcraft being a distinctly female power, but I don't have time to go on that tangent. We don't know exactly what the women did or if Elizabeth Clark protested. What we do know is that they did find three teats that they certified to be unnatural. With this confirmed, the next task was to confirm Elizabeth Clark's pact by witnessing her familiars. So they waited. They swim. Three full days of waiting presented nothing. No imps, no familiars. According to the Roman calendar, it was the last day of the year, and the men watching the Clark house were probably getting a little bit frustrated. Matthew Hopkins enters the house along with John Stern and Hopkins' greyhound. They begin a torrential amount of demands, wanting her accomplices. She was unwavering until they went to leave for the night, promising to be back in the morning. Elizabeth Clark quietly asks them to wait. She asks that if they do not hurt her, she'll give them the information that they wanted. She said, I will show you my imps, for they be ready to come. Matthew Hopkins initially declined the offer, but when Elizabeth pointed to a spot near her and asked them to sit, they did. She was asked if the devil had used her body. Elizabeth told them that it was true that the devil had come to her as a tall, proper man, not unlike Matthew Hopkins himself. And when asked by Stern who she would rather bed, she said she had no doubt, the devil. Elizabeth then outlined for them how she enjoyed carnal copulation with Satan six or seven years ago, and how he had been a regular visitor to her bedchamber. She never refused their lovemaking, and it lasted half the night. I really can't help but feel as though she was having a dig at these guys, first for saying that Matthew Hopkins looked like the devil himself, and then saying she would rather have sex with the literal devil, and that he was way better than they could ever be. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. Next, she called her familiars, a white creature like a cat named Holt. Jamea was an imp in the form of a white dog with sandy spots and fat, short legs. Vinegar Tom was a greyhound with long legs like a stag. Then there were imps that looked like a ferret, and one like a toad. 
These could all appear in different forms, Elizabeth told them. There was one who hadn't shown yet. A black beast called Sack and Sugar. She promised that it would be home soon, and it would tear Stern into pieces for trying to have her thrown into the river. Sack and Sugar arrived, but it was in the form of a harmless rabbit. Elizabeth assured Stern that he was lucky that the rabbit hadn't leapt onto his face and squeezed down on his throat, kind of like something in a Monty Python movie. She explained to the two men that the creatures were her own. Though she had inherited two of them from her mother, she also had two on loan from Anne West. Anyone with marks like what were found on her, she declared, was a witch, though absence doesn't prove innocence. She expanded on her meetings with Satan and her pact to kill livestock, including Robert Taylor's horse and Richard Edwards' pig. Matthew Hopkins, having the confession with names, made his way back home where his greyhound was attacked by a white cat at first and then a larger black cat closer to home. With all the evidence Matthew Hopkins and Stern had gathered, along with half a dozen eyewitness reports of hexes and familiars, they began the formal questioning of Elizabeth Clark, who told them how Anne West had been the one who saw her struggling one day, and told her there were ways and means to live better than she currently did. She provided a kitten to get food for Elizabeth. The kitten brought her food for two nights, and on the third returned with another, and they together promised Elizabeth that they would be like a husband and maintain her after. Overjoyed at this prospect, Elizabeth let the creatures suckle her. Elizabeth Clark was the first name in Stern's record of witches, and she had set Stern and Matthew Hopkins on a journey, giving them precious knowledge to seek out potential witches. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. In April 1645, Matthew Hopkins entered Colchester on business at the jail. Now, before we talk about what he did, I need to tell you about the conditions of this particular jail. Even by 17th century times, this jail had a reputation as being cruel and corrupt. Disease ran rampant, there was caved-in roofs that left prisoners at the mercy of the elements. All day and night, prisoners were kept shackled by their hands and feet, and if they were lucky, they had a bit of damp straw to sleep on instead of the cold stones. Many of the prisoners died of jail fever, which is a catch-all term from cold, malnutrition, just general disease. Matthew Hopkins, despite having no papers or authority to, somehow persuaded the jailer that he had reason to see the women held there. They were the women that he helped pull the confession from, Elizabeth Clark, Elizabeth Gooding, Anne West and her daughter Rebecca West, Anne Leach and her daughter Helen Clark. Despite the confessions of all these women, Matthew Hopkins knew he needed more. So he was here to strike a deal with Rebecca West, the youngest of the group. He questioned her again, gently manipulating her to become an informant. It was a first-hand account of the Sabbath that he wanted. Back home, Rebecca West described how she first gave her heart to the devil seven years earlier. The devil then provided for her and protected her. Eventually, she said, the devil became her lover too. Now, she was telling Matthew Hopkins about the witch's sabbat. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. One afternoon, Rebecca was prompted by her mother to finish her work before sunset. Along the way to Manningtree, Anne West 
had made her promise that she would not tell of what happens when they reach their destination. They arrived at the house with fellow prisoners, and, sitting in a circle, they began. Shapes like dogs and cats jumped up onto the laps of everyone except Rebecca. She was asked if she wished to join the witches' society. Rebecca said yes, and was sworn on a book to keep a secret, even if the rope were round her neck and she ready to be hanged. A demon leapt up and kissed her and promised to do for her what she could desire, and then suckled her at the teats found by the search women. This event was more a token of allegiance. One evening that autumn, when Rebecca was going to bed, the devil appeared before her in the form of a handsome man. He kissed her on the mouth, and they were married then and there, whereupon they consummated the marriage. Rebecca was taken back to Manningtree. Though it isn't recorded the conditions the jail there, it had to be better than Colchester Jail. In the coming days, more witnesses came forward. Keep in mind, we haven't even got to the trial yet. We've just gone before the magistrates to raise the charges against them. But before this trial would begin, Matthew Hopkins received a delegation from Thorpe Lesokin. Margaret Moon, a widow, had been evicted from her cottage in sometime around the 1620s, when a man named Rawblood offered an extra 10 shillings a year in rent. That Easter, she was evicted. Goodwife Rawblood was waiting to go to church that day when she was engulfed in lice, so dense that you could just sweep them off her clothes. While this is horrifying to think of, it wasn't all that she was accused of. We have the deaths of livestock and even the murder of a child that put this accusation fairly into the jurisdiction of the secular courts. When her witch's marks were found, she was asked to produce her familiars. She tried to summon them, drawing a circle with some bread dipped in water. They failed to show, and then she cursed her daughters, claiming that they had stolen her imps. They claimed no knowledge of this, just that they had refused to get firewood and had been threatened with a beating if they didn't comply. Now, oddly enough, they weren't recorded as having been charged with anything, even though the accusation was that they had the imps. Either way, several days later, Margaret Moore confessed to all the charges against her, spoiling bread, killing horses, and killing the child. Neighbours also heard her calling out the names of her twelve imp disciples. Matthew Hopkins left her for the authorities and, having received word that the trial at Colchester had been postponed, moved on to some of the towns over. Along the way, he looked at an incident where two women shared a house and a bed, in which their daughters, both fourteen, slept. One night, Susan Sparrow was awoken by Mary Greencliffe's daughter, crying out, It comes! It comes! Help, mother! It hurts! It hurts! Susan Sparrow told Mary Greencliffe to wake her if she heard any sound of imp suckling, but Greencliffe was impassive, and told her that the imps would get both daughters all in due time. The very next night, Susan Sparrow's daughter screamed. Something had bitten her leg. Just above the right knee was a bruise the size of her hand and lasted a month. Susan Sparrow suspected an imp that took the form of a hare, having seen earlier that day a dog chase a hare that later died. Joan Cooper was 80 years old and had two mice familiars named Jack and Prickiers and a frog imp 
called Frog. Elizabeth Harvey was accused of sending three red mouse-like creatures to harm Francis Stock. In some of these accounts, the devil isn't always present. Sometimes the imps just found the women. Sometimes they were given to friends or family. In one case, Rebecca Jones had been given three moles from a stranger on the road between towns, just accepting moles from strangers. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. Now, in Colchester itself, despite being the main jail that housed all these women awaiting trial, they weren't too fond of the witch hunters themselves. They became involved in a case with a widow from a nearby parish. The proceedings produced quite a bill that the mayor, Robert Buxton, was to pay. Buxton authorised the payment, but taxpayers raised their displeasure with the amount charged, and Buxton's political enemies heavily criticised the venture. Men went as far as to obstruct the witchfinders from interviewing other potential suspects. Stern was summoned also to court, along with some fellow witnesses. Stern failed to show, and a writ outlawing him was issued. The opinion of the general public in that town was souring towards them, and so they made their exit. The witchfinders were crossing into Suffolk sometime in June or July 1645, and over the next few weeks, 150 Suffolk men and women would be identified as witches. This was the turning point in their career, since everything they had done prior to this had been in the district of Manningtree, and Sir Grimston had appointed them by law to carry out this work. But it was in Suffolk. They had real no legal power there. That really didn't stop them. Having some papers of passage and the welcome of the towns allowed them to travel. Stern took the western side of the country, while Matthew Hopkins took the eastern side. They had changed how much they were involved as well. Once they identified the witches, they left them for the local authorities to handle, freeing them to move on to other towns, as not to get caught up acting as witnesses in so many legal cases. Matthew Hopkins knew it would cast doubt on a trial if one person was a witness in so many cases. One man that John Stern had found, John Bysack, had made a pact with the devil in the shape of a dog. In exchange for blood drawn directly from Bysack's heart, he was given six imps. Well, we know that imps come in all forms, cats, dogs, hares, but what shape were Bysack's imps? Snails. And these snails didn't perform chores like many accounts previously. These snails were straight up killers. They killed livestock and, according to Stern's notes, up to six people. There were plenty of accounts from Stern if you want to dive into them. We have Cursed Butter that killed a farmer, stillborn children, lame mares, mouse imps, dog imps, shapeless dark imps. Keep in mind when reading any of these, though, that by his own omission, Stern had a weakness for a good story, and it really simply isn't known how much of these good stories were recounted as fact when he took notes. And don't think Matthew Hopkins wasn't free from fantastical stories either. One of the first accused that he came across was Anne Alderman, who claimed that her missing finger had been twisted off by the devil because she refused to sign a contract for her soul. While her soul was important to her, her body didn't seem so. Having invited the devil to her bed and taking an imp, which she used to kill her daughter and then torment her granddaughter. 
Mary Bacon and her husband Nathaniel made a blood pact with the dog Devil that promised them an annual income of 14 pounds. Now for reference, um, back in 1460s, 26 pounds was what a skilled laborer earned in a year, and 14 pounds could buy you a cow, enough wool for clothes, and quite a substantial amount of wheat. Of all the confessions, we don't know the exact means of extraction. We can make a guess that they were brutal since people tend not to confess things that are going to send them to the noose so easily. There was an instance that the confession of Rebecca Morris was made without any violence, watching, or other threats. But it seems most of these came about from watching, where the accused were watched all day and night, denied food, water, and sleep until they confessed or their imps paid them a visit. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. James Hopkins had an estate near Framlingham, which passed to Matthew Hopkins upon his death. It's possible that the income from this estate funded the early days of witch hunting. In the summer of 1654, as Matthew Hopkins was calling in to check on his property, a coven of witches was exposed. At least 12 women from the parish and three from the surrounding area. Though a problem before, an influx of Irish refugees several years earlier didn't help with the shortage of land, houses or work. Resentment fested between neighbours, breaks in social customs that caused bitterness but really couldn't be pursued legally. Elizabeth Warren had an argument with her landlord about her rent and was accused of hexing his child with sickness and making the beer go bad. After being watched for three nights, Elizabeth Warren confessed. In her confession, she named Elizabeth Mann as having sent the devil to her. Elizabeth Mann was the daughter of a convicted witch and a falling out with goodwife Stanner after which her child had fallen ill. Elizabeth Mann was searched and found with the marks of the witch. Stenner may have breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that the cause of the child's misfortune was being dealt with. Upon returning home that night, however, her husband had bad news for her. Their child had taken to convulsions and fits. We only know that it continued for several more days. There's no record anywhere of the child having survived or died. Margaret Ward had the usual imps in her service, though she only had five teats, and the imps would fight amongst themselves when it came time to feed. She told Matthew Hopkins that she had been given a warning from the devil himself that he was coming to town, and that she should keep her mouth shut. She then reports that he beat her into submission. It seems that pretty much each town visited in Suffolk was the same, large nests of witches wriggling to the surface like worms during rainstorms. In the village over, eleven stood accused. Two-thirds of them resisted, which marks the first time that it is recorded on the formal record, because it's no doubt that women would have resisted prior to this. In addition to this detail, we find that the record states that three women gave their statements freely, which suggests that the methods the witchfinders had been using were brutal at best. Continuing on, Susanna Smith had an encounter with a red dog 18 years earlier, and when pressed for more information, Susanna Smith's throat closed up so that she could barely talk. The next day it seems that she was well enough to talk, and told the watcher that a black bee had entered her body and threatened to kill her if she talked. 
it had advised her to kill herself with the rusty kitchen knife instead of confessing. In Halesworth, Thomas Everett had an encounter with a black waterhound, and after some troubling dreams, accepted imps. He would later marry a known witch, Mary Moore. They would have children together, one of whom also became a witch. Upon becoming grandparents, they killed the grandchild. Everard also killed other children and livestock and, with the support of Mary Moore, convinced his brother-in-law, James Moore, to suckle an imp. All three confessed freely without a watch. Though he oversaw all these confessions, Matthew Hopkins' name hardly ever appears on the official records. Again, his method during this time seemed to be more set the townsfolk on the right track before moving on after the accused had been sent to jail and was awaiting trial. In a testament to how objectively innocent women could be persuaded into confessing something that would send them to the noose, we have an unnamed witch close to the Norfolk border, a gentlewoman of great piety and virtue. She was kept fasting without sleep, to which she confessed and called her imp Nan. Only after she had confessed was she given some meat and let to go to sleep. When she awoke and was told of what she had said, she said that she had a chicken she sometimes called Nan, but that was all. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. Finally, the 17th of July, 1645, was the date set for the trial for the original set of witches that Stern and Matthew Hopkins had first dealt with. They were called back to be witnesses in these cases. It was held in a nearby town of Kelmsford handling the trials and executions alike. At the end of the day, only one, Joan Rowell, was acquitted. All but one of the nine witches had been convicted solely for conjuring spirits, which raises a few eyebrows with some of the magistrates. See, they would have been well aware what the law said about trials of witches, and that only if there was proof of livestock or human death could they hang the witch. These few managed to stave off death sentence for some of the women, having them spend their time in jail while they awaited a pardon application from Parliament. The thing is, despite it not being technically within the law, many jurors saw the practice of witchcraft in the community as something very damaging, not just to the spiritual health, but also to the social fabric of a community. They could have reasoned that one or two lives might be worth it to quell a township that might go bad and rebel. Now, if you think that sensationalism in the news is a modern thing, buddy, let me tell you of the collapse of censorship in 1641. This brought about a torrential amount of cheap printed works, and with the outbreak of war during this time, people turned to pamphlets for their news. And these pamphlets ranged anywhere from a few pages to 40 or 50 pages to full-on books. A bookseller in London had managed to get his hands on the witness statements and confessions. Now, maybe it was out of some sort of sense of duty to preserve these because he was a specialist of religious texts, or maybe it was just a chance to get a quick buck. Either way, he made a true and exact relation of the several informants and examinations and confessions of the late witches. A 44-page pamphlet, of which the title evidently takes up the majority of the pages. Released barely a month after the executions, he sold out on the first two runs that he printed in no time flat. 
It may have been for this publication, or maybe simply rumours from alehouses and pubs, but word of this trial made it to Parliament. It wouldn't be long before they were hearing a partition from Kelmsford on behalf of these reprived women. But before it could, the witch craze broke out in Suffolk. A decision was made by Westminster Assembly of Divines to intervene at the Suffolk trials to ensure that everything was above board, all the proper procedures observed, and that the evidential standards were being upheld to the highest standard. They had to be swift too, because one of those on trial was an ordained clergyman. It is from here we will pick up on part two of the life of Matthew Hopkins. I have been your host, Keenan. Thank you for listening. Thank you.